BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From Bonnie London Town, this is Obscure Season 4, an American tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, with much to discuss, uh, maybe even much to disgust, the wife and I trundled out into the brisk London summer air. It's uh, I'm recording this on the 4th of July, and it's been an overcast and rainy 4th of July here in London. Now, one of the reasons... Uh, There are two chief reasons we came to London over the summer. The first is that we did not quite feel like uh, returning to the United States of America. The second is because, well, I guess there's three. Because we could not stay in Italy longer than three months or in any of the Schengen countries, we had to find someplace else to go. The UK is one of the few places in Europe where we could go, and London seemed especially attractive to me because if there's one thing I hate, it's a it's a hot, humid summer. I do not care for this irascible savanna heat I've been experiencing the last couple of years, and so I thought, well, London summers are supposed to be cool in the uh, meteorological sense of the word. And it seemed like that would be a good place to be. And they it has not disappointed. It's been in the 60s all this week and maybe last week. And, uh, you know, it gets up maybe to the mid-80s. And the Londoners here apologize to you when it gets into the mid-80s. Oh, sorry, it's so hot. And you think to yourself, oh, if this is as bad as it gets, brother, we're in for a good time. Because I don't care for that prickly, rashy feeling on the back of my neck when the sun is beaten down. And so, you know, if I look out if I look out the window on July 4th and it's overcast and drizzly and it's 67 degrees outside, I'm thinking to myself, terrific. Man, this is just my kind of weather. I love it. Not to say I love London. It's fine, but uh, I do love the weather. At least the summer weather. I'll take I'll take it every day of the week in July. Overcast and drizzly. I love it. But anyway, it was gonna. It's gonna be rain. It was rainy today. You know, July Fourth, and uh, so to celebrate the birth of a nation, we decided to take in a movie, uh, an American film called Asteroid City by the auteur Wes Anderson, and featuring a star-studded cast of thespians of the highest rank. Did I care for this movie? I did not. What a piece of shit this movie is. My goodness. You know, I'm not a big Wes Anderson fan for all the reasons that people love Wes Anderson, and I know that many people do. Those are the reasons that I find him insufferable. I do not like the set design. I do not like 
the, uh, the, the, the manner of speech. I do not care for the symmetry. And I was not the one who suggested we go see this film. It was the wife, and I happily acquiesced because it is my job in life to make her happy. But 20 minutes into this thing, man, I was pretty, I was ready to jump out of my skin because, because there's no humanity in it. You know, it's about a play. Uh, it's, it, you know, I, I don't know what you know about this film, but it's kind of about, it's kind of a movie about a movie about a play, basically. And um, it's set in the 50s. And, uh, you know, I'm not spoiling anything. I mean, I don't, if, if you want to go see it, see it, you're, you're going to get exactly what you think you're going to get, but less of it. Simultaneously, more and less. There's even more Wes Anderson, and it adds up to even less. It's just, you know, I, I hate to use the word masturbatory, but that's what it is. It's just Wes Anderson peering up inside Wes Anderson's asshole for about two hours. And at the end of it, you go to your, you think to yourself, well, what was that all about? And the answer, so far as I can tell, is nothing. Like, you know, I'm not the dumbest, of, I'm not the dimmest of bulbs. I'm not saying I'm the brightest either, but I'm not the dimmest of bulbs. And if I walk out of that film and I'm thinking to myself, I don't have a clue what that was about, and I suspect neither does the filmmaker, then perhaps it wasn't really worth making. And I don't think it was. I don't think it was at all. It's not what I want from a cinematic experience. It's not from what I want from a literary experience. I do not want the lack of human uh, connection, feeling, or intimacy to be its primary, I don't want to say its focus, its milieu. There's just nothing going on there between people. And I want to understand humanity better through works of art. I don't want to understand it less, or, or rather, I don't want... I don't want humanity to be ignored in works of art. And I feel like that's what Wes Anderson is increasingly doing. He's just, he's just, he's setting up dioramas in his head and having Jason Schwartzman run around them for two hours. But it doesn't, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, folks, not a hill of beans. Anywho, to contrast that, I watched uh, There Will Be Blood again recently. I watched... Uh, no Country for Old Men again recently. Both of those are just flapjack and fantastic films because they're all about the human condition and they're beautifully made and they're uh, fantastic performances. The scripts are beautiful. There's a lot to be said for both of those films. But the point is, at least in the case of There Will Be Blood, it calls to mind already what we have started unpacking here in the opening pages of an American tragedy. First of all, the time frame that's setting is similar. There Will Be Blood takes place at the turn of the previous, uh, two centuries ago, I guess, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, um, while an American tragedy takes place in 1925. Similarly, if we can start to pick out themes and we can't really because we're on basically page three of an American tragedy, but what we know about Dreiser is that he is this naturalist writer. We have heard him talk already about an apathetic universe, and that seems to be the central struggle of There Will Be Blood. In it, we have the capitalist pitted against the uh, man of God, each of them staking out his own claim for 
supremacy, each of them combating the other, each of them corrupt in their own way. And I suspect we're heading into similar territory with an American tragedy. One thing that I feel like I may have overlooked a little bit or didn't, didn't even touch on when we first started reading the book was, it was written, as I say, in 1925, and we're coming out of the, the First World War now. We're, we're seven years past the First World War. I don't know when Dreiser started writing this book, but surely that war was fresh in his mind as the Doughboys returned home from over there, over there. You know, their bodies wrecked, their minds also wrecked, and the world as we knew it has been shifted into something different, has been metastasized into something new and dangerous. And certainly one's relationship to a benevolent almighty would be thrown into question by the events of the previous years. Would one's uh, view not be at least shaken? And so here we have this little family trundling out into the downtown of some nondescript city of a few hundred thousand people. And here there's a father and a mother warbling hymns to the masses. And there among them, a boy, a teenage boy who doesn't seem to be uh, a part of them or doesn't want to be a part of the whole mess of it. We've got a mother who is... Uh, singing in her clear but nasal soprano, and a son being forced to do the same. The oldest boy don't want to be here, said one observer. He feels out of place. Another says, yeah, I guess that's so. That's where we ended it last time. In view of the uneasy and self-conscious expression upon the face whenever it was lifted, one might have intelligently suggested that it was a little unkind as well as idle to thus publicly force upon a temperament as yet unfitted to absorb their imports religious and psychic services best suited to reflective temperaments of maturer years, yet so it was. So we'll see if we're going to spend any more time with this family. I suspect we're going to spend a lot of time with them, considering we've got about 750 pages left to go. Let us pick it up again. Chapter 1, An American Tragedy. As for the remainder of the family, both the youngest girl and boy were too small to really understand much of what it was all about or to care. The eldest girl at the organ appeared not so much to mind as to enjoy the attention and comment her presence and singing evoked, for more than once, not only strangers, but her mother and father had assured her her that she had an appealing and compelling voice, which was only partially true. It was not a good voice. They did not really understand music. Physically, she was of a pale, emasculate, and unimportant structure. (laughs) I've never heard anybody's um, um, body be described as an unimportant structure with no real mental force or depth, and was easily made to feel that this was an excellent field in which to distinguish herself 
and detract a little attention. Aren't we all, aren't we, don't we all do that? You know, we suspect ourselves to be of unimportant structure. And so we look for that thing, whatever that thing may be, that will distinguish us from, uh, you know, from the hoi polloi. As for the parents, they were determined upon spiritualizing the world as much as possible. And once the hymn was concluded, the father launched into one of those hackneyed descriptions of the delights of a release via self-realization of the mercy of God and the love of Christ and the will of God towards sinners from the burdensome cares of an evil conscience. So now we've arrayed the family before us. There they are, standing on the sidewalk. The, the, the hymn concluded the uh, son, sheepish and meek, the daughter at the organ, the two youngest sort of enjoying themselves within the spectacle of their own private partridge family. All men are sinners in the light of the Lord, he declared, unless they repent, unless they accept Christ, his love and forgiveness of them. They can never know the happiness of being spiritually whole and clean. Oh, my friends, if you could but know the peace and content that comes with the knowledge, the inward understanding that Christ lived and died for you, and that he walks with you every day and hour, by light and by dark, at dawn and at dusk, to keep and strengthen you for the tasks and cares of the world that are ever before you. Oh, the snares and pitfalls that beset us all, and then the soothing realization that Christ is ever with us to counsel, to aid, to hearten, to bind up our wounds and make us whole. Oh, the peace, the satisfaction, the comfort, the glory of that. Amen asseverated his wife and the daughter, Hester, or Esther, as she was called by the family, moved by the need of as much public support as possible for all of them, echoed it after her. So, it is a little bit funny, I think. Is it funny? Is, it, is there a self-consciousness in Dreiser that he feels it uh, necessary to say that the sermon you're about to hear or read is hackneyed, uh, as if to say, look, we're only a few pages in the book. If you don't know me, like, dude, like, I'm a better writer than this. This is, this is the kind of hackneyed shit you're going to hear. Like, this isn't me. This is the dude saying it. Like, I'm not trite like this shit, okay? Like, I'm making fun of this. This is the kind of, this is the kind of garbage you're going to hear out there on the streets. This isn't me, Dreiser. Teddy, t- Teddy Dreiser, TD. Like, I'm better than this, just so you know. Does he have enough confidence to know that we know that he's a better writer, even four pages or five pages in? I suppose, I suppose he does. I mean, I think he was already a well-established man of letters at this point, but he did feel the need to say it. Good enough. Clyde, the eldest boy, and the two younger children merely gazed at the ground or occasionally at their father with a feeling that possibly it was all true and important yet somehow not as significant or inviting as some of the other things which life held. They heard so much of this, and to their young and eager minds, 
life was made for something more than street and mission hall protestations of this sort. Well, sure, for Clyde, Clyde's a teenage boy. He wants to get out there probably with his uh, with his dancing shoes on, you know, and cut a rug with some gal from the from the town. He probably wants to get out there and maybe even do a dance marathon. Well, I guess it's not the Depression yet, so they didn't have those. But maybe he wants to do a little jitterbug, you know, with a flapper. It is the Roaring Twenties, after all. And the two youngest, man, they just want to play ColecoVision. Because remember, this is uh, this takes place a long time ago, so they didn't have the Nintendo Switch. They were probably stuck with ColecoVision. Finally, after a second hymn and an address by Mrs. Griffiths, during which she took occasion to refer to the mission work jointly conducted by them in a nearby street and their services to the cause of Christ in general, a third hymn was indulged in, and then some tracts describing the mission rescue work being distributed. Such voluntary gifts as were forthcoming were taken up by Asa, the Father. And that's what it's all about, folks. Is it not the voluntary gifts? Look, folks, we put on a show. We sang you three songs. We gave you a, a sermon. We gave you an address. We told you about our charitable works. We did it all. Can't you reach deep into your pockets and throw a couple of shekels our way? Not for us, you understand, but for the poor, the needy, and the indigent. Can't you find it in your cold hearts? Can't you open them just a little bit and let Christ in through your pennies and hay pennies, through your nickels and dimes, through your folded dollar bills? I know a dollar is a lot to ask here in the 1920s, but by golly, we could feed a family of 10 with one American dollar. The small organ was closed, the camp chair folded up and given to Clyde, the Bible and hymn books picked up by Mrs. Griffiths, and with the organ supported by a leather strap, passed over the shoulder of Griffiths Sr., the mission word march was taken up. During all this time, Clyde was saying to himself that he did not wish to do this any more that he and his parents looked foolish and less than normal. Cheap was the word he would have used if he could have brought himself to express his full measure of resentment at being compelled to participate in this way, and that he would not do it any more if he could help. What good did it do them to have him along? His life should not be like this. Other boys did not have to do as he did. He meditated now more determinedly than ever. A rebellion by which he would rid himself. Hold on, I'm trying to find a place to, you know, it's a big book, and I'm trying to find a place to put it as I read it. You know, it's got to be within eyesight, and it's heavy. You know, 750 pages, my God, you get a workout just lifting this thing. You know, but I gotta, I gotta be close to the microphone, and but I can't quite turn my head, and I got, I got a, I got a situation here. I got to work out. My goodness, because what, what you don't know is that I'm lying supine on my couch. You know, the room, the the apartment here is two rooms. It's got a bedroom and it's got a room. I'm in the room. Martha's in the bedroom, and the kitchen is before us, but the kitchen is attached to the room. It's just a tiny little flat here in London. A tiny little made affair flat, and. Uh, really just the couch 
to sit on. Anyway, uh, he would rid himself of the need of going out in this way. Let his elder sister go if she chose. She liked it. His younger sister and brother might be too young to care, but he... They seemed a little more attentive than usual tonight, I thought, commented Griffiths to his wife as they walked along, the seductive quality of the summer air softening him into a more generous interpretation of the customary indifferent spirit of the passerby. Yes, 27 took tracks tonight as against 18 on Thursday. The love of Christ must eventually prevail, comforted the father, as much to hearten himself as his wife. The pleasures and cares of the world hold a very great many, but when sorrow overtakes them, then some of these seeds will take root. I am sure of it. That is the thought which always keeps me up. Sorrow and the weight of sin eventually bring some of them to see the error of their way. They now entered into the narrow side street from which they had emerged, and walking as many as a dozen doors from the corner, entered the door of a yellow single-story wooden building, the large window and the two glass panes in the central door of which had been painted a gray-white. Across both windows and the smaller panels in the double door, had been painted the Door of Hope, Bethel Independent Mission, meetings every Wednesday and Saturday night, 8 to 10, Sundays at 11, 3, and 8. Everybody welcome. Under this legend on each window were printed, printed the words, God is love. And below this again in smaller type, how long since you wrote to mother? <laughs> A small company entered the yellow, unprepossessing door and disappeared. End of chapter one. Look at that. Already through the first chapter of an American tragedy, book one, I feel terrific about it. We've really accomplished something, haven't we, folks? All right, let's take a little break. And then when we return, we'll pick it up with chapter two, Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Back on Obscure with uh, this this old book, this big old heavy tome, good for reading, good for stopping at a door. And uh, hey, why beat around the bush? Let's get right to it. Chapter 2. That such a family, thus cursorily presented, might have a different and somewhat peculiar history could well be anticipated. Again, Dreiser is saying, hey guys, this is, you know, look. I, the, the the sermon was hackneyed, and I'm going to give you a little sketch of the family, and maybe you're thinking, well, there's got to be more to it than this. Well, there is. That's what he's saying. Trust me, I'm the writer. I know what I'm doing. Do we, de- do we detect a note of self-consciousness in the writing of Theodore Dreiser? Something to keep an eye on as we proceed. It could well be anticipated, and it would be true. Indeed. This one presented one of those anomalies of psychic and social reflex and motivation, such as would tax the skill of not only the psychologist, but the chemist and physicist as well to unravel. 
I mean, this is interesting. I just find this interesting from an authorial point of view. Why comment on your own writing? Why say that uh, this family is so complicated, so up to their elbows in shit, that it's not, it's not just a psychologist. I mean, you'd have to throw in the whole bevy of the physical sciences to, to figure this family out. Thank God you've gotten me here, the writer, to do it for you, right? That's kind of what he's saying. Rather than just present the story, why comment on it like that? It's a, it takes me out of the story, and it makes me go, well, you know, calm down, Teddy. It's all going to be fine. You know, we trust you. And, you know, we, we picked up the book, didn't we? We bought, we bought the thing. We obviously believe in you. So just, you know, you don't need to comment on it. Just take us down the primrose path. We'll follow. To begin with, Asa Griffiths, the father, was one of those poorly integrated and correlated organisms, the product of an environment and a religious theory, but with no guiding or mental insight of his own, yet sensitive and therefore highly emotional and without any practical sense whatsoever. Indeed, it would be hard to make clear just how life appealed to him or what the true hue of his emotional responses was. On the other hand, as has been indicated, his wife was of a firmer texture, but with scarcely any truer or more practical insight into anything. I'm going to pause again. I, look, if, if I'm annoying, so, so be it. That's my whole purpose here is to be annoying. But uh, again, uh, authorial, authorially, wouldn't it be better to not have this paragraph here at all, but just to, just to show us this truth about Asa? Wouldn't it be better to, to just stay with the story of the thing rather than give us a kind of psychological profile, uh, show us rather than tell us? when it comes to Asa Griffiths and his wife and, and Brood. We can see Clyde there on the street, you know, his hands in his pockets and shifting back and forth on his feet. He clearly doesn't want to be there. The, common, the onlookers can see it, and we can see it plain as day. But we don't know nothing about Asa Griffiths here, other than what you're telling us. You're telling us sort of his uh, psychological makeup, and we don't want to know that without, without it being illustrated in some manner. But let's proceed. The history of this man and his wife is of no particular interest here, save as it affected their boy of twelve, Clyde Griffiths. This youth, aside from a certain emotionalism and exotic sense of romance which characterized him, and which he took more from his father than from his mother, brought a more vivid and intelligent imagination to things, and was constantly thinking of how he might better himself if he had a chance, places to which he might go, things he might see, and how differently he might live if only this, that, and the other things were true. The principal thing that troubled Clyde up to his fifteenth year, and for long after in retrospect, was that the calling or profession of his parents was the shabby thing that it appeared to be in the eyes of others. For so often throughout his youth in different cities in which his parents had conducted a mission or spoken on the streets, Grand Rapids, Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, lastly Kansas City, it had been obvious that people, at least the boys and girls he encountered, 
look down upon him and his brothers and sisters for being the children of such parents. On several occasions, and much against the mood of his parents, who never countenanced such exhibitions of temper, he had stopped to fight with one or another of these boys. But always, beaten or victorious, he had been conscious of the fact that the work his parents did was not satisfactory to others. Shabby, trivial. And always he was thinking of what he would do once he reached the place where he could get away. These are familiar feelings, are they not? You know, in Clyde's case, one could be forgiven for taking his side. His parents do have a kind of shabby and trivial profession when looked at from the, uh, you know, from the materialistic 30,000 foot view that so many of us inhabit, looking down on these poor people standing there on the street corner with their reed organ, basically no better than beggars. Um, if you take a more spiritual side, then they, you know, perhaps they're answering a profound and deep calling to get out there and minister to those falling before them. Clyde clearly belongs to the former camp, not the latter. And like boys of his age in this new century, he is dreaming of ways to ascend, dreaming of places he might go, things he might do in this racing American country were he not shackled to these grotesque figures. He knows as Ma and Pa. I don't know that he calls them Ma and Pa. Seems like he should. I would. For Clyde's parents had proved impractical in the matter of the future of their children. They did not understand the importance or the essential necessity for some form of practical or professional training for each and every one of their young ones. Instead, being wrapped up in the notion of evangelizing the world, they had neglected to keep their children in school in any one place. They had moved here and there, sometimes in the very midst of an advantageous school season, because of a larger and better religious field in which to work. And there were times when, the work proving highly unprofitable and Asa being unable to make much money at the two things he most understood, gardening and canvassing for one invention or another, they were quite without sufficient food or decent clothes, and the children could not go to school. In the face of such situations as these, whatever the children might think, Asa and his wife remained as optimistic as ever, or they insisted to themselves that they were, and had unwavering faith in the Lord and his intention to provide. Do we sense, I'm asking the question but do not know yet the answer, do we sense a strain of anger emanating from Master Dreiser towards the faithful? Hardy certainly seemed to have it we recall. Young Ms. Bronte was not so uh, obvious in her feelings on the matter, her father being a parson after all. And um, Ms. Shelley also seemed to have her reservations on the, if not on the presence of the supernatural, then on its 
nature. We have in our midst, I would say, four skeptics, four skeptical writers. And perhaps that is what made them writers to begin with. One does not necessarily need to put pen to page if one accepts the status quo. The combination home and mission which this family occupied was dreary enough in most of its phases to discourage the average youth or girl of any spirit. That's interesting. He distinguishes a youth from a girl, the average youth or girl of any spirit. So youths must just be boys. It consisted in its entirety of one long store floor in an old and decidedly colorless and inartistic wooden building, which was situated in that part of Kansas City, which lies north of Independence Boulevard and west of Troost Avenue, the exact street or place being called Bickle, a very short thoroughfare opening off Missouri Avenue, a somewhat more lengthy but no less nondescript highway. And the entire neighborhood in which it stood was very faintly, and yet not agreeably redolent of a commercial life which had long since moved farther south, if not west. It was some five blocks from the spot on which twice a week the open-air meetings of these religious enthusiasts and proselytizers were held. So there, 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 is, um, there is a community of the spirited, not five blocks from the spot. Twice a week, open-air meetings of religious enthusiasts and proselytizers, no doubt more successful than our Griffith's family. I've been to Kansas City. I don't know it well, or really at all. Um, But I imagine in 1925, its nature was decidedly different than it is today, because then, 100 years back, uh, Kansas City would have been I would imagine sort of a boom town, a big and bustling metropolis, and, you know, somewhat uh, westerly. You know, by that point, of course, the, the whole continent had been settled, but I would imagine Kansas City probably still retained some of its western flair, even though now we would call it the Midwest. It probably still had a kind of the, the last remnants of a, of a frontier town about it. I might just be making shit up, but that's what I do on this podcast. And it was the ground floor of this building, looking out into Bickle Street at the front, and some dreary backyards of equally dreary frame houses, which was divided at the front into a hall 40 by 25 feet in size, in which had been placed some 60 collapsible wooden chairs, a lectern, a map of Palestine or the Holy Land, and for wall decorations, some 25 printed but unframed mottos which read, in part, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That's one motto, you know, kind of like a, uh, you know, one of those uh, inspirational posters you might see in an office these days, you know. Take hold of shield and buckler, and stand up for mine help. Psalm 35, 2. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God, Ezekiel 34, 31. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee, Psalm 
69, verse 5. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. For the day of the Lord is near, Obadiah 15. For there, sh there shall be no reward to this evil man, Proverbs 24.20 Look then, not upon the wine that it is red. It biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Proverbs 23.31-32 and 32. These mighty adjurations were as silver and gold plates set in a wall of dross. <laughs> a wall of dross. When I go to the dentist, they give me dental dross, and it's actually very, very helpful. So uh, many of these, let's just look, take, take a quick look back at these uh, posters. Uh, wine is a mocker, so it's, and then, uh, and then another one, uh, look not upon the wine when it is red, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. So it's got, it's uh, definitely a, a temperance, you know, it, it, talking about temperance there. And then a lot of, a lot of sin and a lot of, a lot of uh, aspersions towards the nature of man. Oh God, thou knowest my foolishness, for there shall be no reward to the evil man. Stand up for mine help. The rear 40 feet of this very commonplace floor was intricately and yet neatly divided into three small bedrooms a living room which overlooked the backyard and wooden fences of yards no better than those at the back, also a combination kitchen and dining room, exactly 10 feet square. Well, that's what I've got right here. Probably about 10 feet square itself. Uh, combination kitchen, dining room, and also a living room. And a storeroom for mission tracks, hymnals, boxes, trunks, and whatever else of non-immediate use but of assumed value which the family owned. This particular small room lay immediately to the rear of the mission hall itself, and into it before or after speaking, or at such times as a conference seemed important, both Mr. and Mrs. Griffiths were wont to retire, also at times to meditate or pray." So the whole thing is, you know, they got they got this big uh, floor of this building, and it's you know it's got everything they need right there. They got their congregation and their storage and their apartments and their kitchen and everything else, and it's uh, you know it's dreary, but it's home. How often had Clyde and his sisters and younger brothers seen his mother or father or both in conference with some derelict or semi-repentant soul who had come for advice or aid? most usually for aid. And here, at times, when his mother's and father's financial difficulties were greatest, they were to be found thinking, or, as Asa Griffiths was wont helplessly to say at times, praying their way out, a rather ineffectual way, as Clyde began to think later. And the whole neighborhood was so dreary and run down that he hated the thought of living in it, let alone being part of a work that required constant appeals for aid, as well as constant prayer and thanksgiving to sustain it. I think I'll end there.
my uh, my throat's getting tired. You know, with these longer episodes, I didn't realize it's just a few minutes longer, but I already feel the the raspiness in my throat starting to climb. I'm going to have to work up to longer episodes. It's not that easy for a fellow like me who has no training in such matters, never mind the fact that I do, in fact, have training in such matters, but long-neglected training, let us say. Um, so there we have it. You know, we have the Griffiths. We have their their uh, the sadness of their meeting place, their living quarters, the dreariness, the drabness, and we have Clyde alone among them, able to see it for what it is, shabby and cheap, trivial, the scrounging that his parents are forced to do in the name of the Lord because they have no marketable skills. They are unable to do much of anything at all between them. But they persist and persevere in the name of the Lord. And we suspect Clyde is going to make his own way in this world. And he will be met with a different set of challenges than his parents had faced to this point. I have no idea what they're be what they're gonna be. I mean, is Clyde gonna be like Daniel Plainview and there will be blood, a self-made man? Is he gonna go out and strike oil or some damn thing? Who knows? Will he become one of those fabled self-made men? And how will it all come crumbling down if he does? We know it will come crumbling down because of the title of the book is American Tragedy, so there's gonna be tragedy. It's tragic enough when you're embarrassed by your parents. God, we've all been there. More tragic still when you have your own kids and and face your own downfall and demise. But who knows? We're we're running running well ahead of ourselves here. We're only on chapter two. By God, by golly. Let's wrap it up. Happy Fourth of July to all who celebrate. Um, It is now weeks past for you, but new for me and uh, we will return next week on another enervating episode well i hope it's not enervating let's let's say something else in let's go with invigorating invigorating episode of obscure but until then i wish you toodaloo because we're in england toodaloo hi ho pippy kaye motherfucker and of course Adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading uh and it's just a fun community so you know head on over to patreon.com slash michael ian black and i will see you next time